0: I read this play in a mall. Don't read this play in a mall. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to No Script, an unscripted podcast about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai, And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. And we are coming at you again with another play this week. We're very excited about this play. This is one that stood out to me in my, my time in college when I read it, and it stuck with me all the way till now. We're talking about How I Learned to Drive this week by Paula Vogel.
1: Yes, this play was written and developed at the Perseverance Theater in Alaska, fairly interesting place to write this play. Its uh, production history largely is in New York at the Vineyard Theater where it first started. A uh, little tidbit there, the original lead character, a little bit, was played by Mary Louise Parker, which yeah. is uh, kind of a fun— look back at uh, some of her early career back in 1977. It transferred a couple places in uh, New York to play there. Then in 1998, it was awarded the Pulitzer prize for drama, which, uh, you know, if you've been listening to our conversation so far, we've done a lot of the Pulitzer prizes. So, you know, as you know, as we think about this podcast as being a podcast for theater's best scripts, that's the place where we know we can find some really quality scripts. However, all the scripts that we've pulled off the Pulitzer list, except for the one that was awarded our very first episode, Sweat, all the other ones Jackson and I have known previously, which is kind of fun that we could talk about plays we know and like and have been fairly well awarded by the academics. But that is how I learned to drive uh, 1998 Pulitzer Prize for drama.
0: Yes, indeed. And just kind of give you a a quick synopsis of the play before we start digging into it. Uh, This is a, it feels like a very personal play. It follows the storyline of Little Bit, who is uh, the, main, the main character of it and her uh, journey through this uh, very abusive relationship with her uncle uh, named Peck um, and kind of growing up in, in a uh, very uh, sexual family. Um, they talk about sex a lot throughout the play in front of each other and around each other. Um, what's kind of neat about this play in terms of its uh, structure is the other characters besides Lil Bit, and I'm I'm uh, contracting Little, just so you know if I'm not being clear across the airwaves. So Lil Bit and Peck are the only characters that are that have a character name. The other all the other characters in the play are played by a Greek chorus. Uh, by one male Greek chorus, one female Greek chorus, and then a teenage female Greek chorus. And that kind of aspect is kind of fun because we recently talked about Oedipus Rex. I'm looking forward to kind of getting into that. But it, it definitely follows the line of her childhood and her relationship with this and parallels it to uh, kind of driver's ed and learning how to drive this car of her uncle's. And Right. Uh,
1: it's really one of the insidious things about the relationship is that Uncle Peck and the story has taken what is part of, um, part of growing up, part of coming into being your own person is learning how to drive in our, in today's world. You know, that's the place where you feel like you can now take ownership for your own transportation. You can take ownership for controlling what happens when you're on the road. There is and actually some of the conversation a little bit and uncle Peck have about driving is about that very feature of control that when you're driving, you're in control on the road. And as you're a young person becoming, an adult, one of the things that happens is that someone teaches you how to drive in most, you know, in most families, not all families are blessed that way, but in a lot of families across the country, somebody teaches you how to drive, preferably somebody you love that gifts you with that power of control. The insidious part of this relationship is that it is an an abuser that gifts a little bit with the control of driving while taking away and twisting some of her control
0: over her body and her choices. Yep. And right, right about now is probably a good time to just mention this is a good play to have a content warning about. Um, we are going to be talking. It is a it is a play about in some in some capacity sexual abuse by the by the uncle and uh, on 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 little bit so. So just be warned, uh, we'll be kind of digging into those topics. So feel free to listen. I think it's also
1: the right place, too, to mention, you know, we've talked, this subject has come up in a couple of our conversations. It's always good to remind us that Jackson and I are two adult males. Uh, Personally, myself, I have not had the experience of being sexually assaulted. So I'm coming at it from a, a different perspective, a different angle. The other thing that I think is important to say is, You know, unequivocally, I I suspect Jackson agrees with me that we believe Uncle Peck to be in the wrong. It is a horrible, terrible thing that he has done there. It's a very black and white issue to me. However, like all good drama... Paula Vogel has written a play that plays with some of the gray areas of that character, that stereotype of of being a pedophile um, and the relationship between Uncle Peck and a little bit. So as we explore the kind of gray shifting areas in their relationship, we should say up front, black and white, where this is not a discussion of the whether pedophilia or childhood sexual assault lies in a gray area. That that does not. That's not what we're saying. We're talking about the characters and situations written by Paula Vogel for this play.
0: Yes, indeed. So, that being said, let's kind of jump into it here. The play kind of, uh, I, it's really masterful the way that uh she marries the 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 titles throughout the play. There are as bolded titles of of a driver's ed class yeah they're
1: they're like um introduction i think the 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 notes about them is that they're supposed to sound like introductions on those driver's ed videos yeah like Like if you ever take an actual driver's ed class those safety videos the voice is supposed to be sort of bland and introduce them and some of them are really sound almost exactly like it like uh, i think the one that is comes out a lot is something like you and the reverse gear
0: yep yeah, that one actually comes out a bunch, and and it it takes a while. I imagine in in the watching of it, it's hard to pick up on it, but they actually have a lot of bearing over what is happening in each of the scenes. There's a lot of them that repeat. The uh, the one about being in reverse always has to do with her remembering back to a time. And during the course of the play, you go uh, further and further back in time. So you start, I think, in seventy or sixty nine. Or or around that time, and then yeah. you work back through the sixties. Well, let,
1: let's let's talk about the timeline a little bit because yeah, yeah. the the actress playing a little bit is supposed to be an adult actress. Um, yeah. Paula Vogel specifies that in this in this version, if you if you produce the script as is, she would be more or less thirty five. Paula Vogel, I, who I really like as a player for a lot of reasons, one of the reasons I like her is that she likes to give some artistic license. So she has some notes in the script about you know if you have an actress that's a little older, a little younger. Younger, just change the line. It, you know, there's some flexibility in that age, but we do know for sure this is an adult actress headed towards, you know, if she was 35, she's not quite yet middle aged, but headed towards being in the middle part of her life. She then, so that's sort of, I don't know if I would call that the present moment. That's maybe... The meta story is that mm-hmm. this adult woman is telling us what happened in the past. So there's that that timeline of being 35. Let's say let's just take what the script says, 35. Yep. Then a lot of the action of the play happens, like Jackson said, in the 68 to 1968 to 1970 range, as she is about to graduate high school and go to college, and then in her first year of college, so she is 16, 17, 18, 19, that age.
0: Yep. And and each of these different categories of time frames have different lines within that driver's ed language. So you have the the uh, oh boy, what is the reverse one? I really want to find it. I'm not finding it. But I, I think uh, it's
1: you and the reverse gear. I yeah, think that, you. I and, think that actually what it is.
0: What it is. You and the reverse gear, and then there's idling and neutral gear, and those ones tend to be like one character monologuing as you kind of get. Uh, more and more information. The story isn't progressing necessarily. It's pretty. It's pretty neutral gear. You're idling. Um,
1: or, or one one of my favorite uses of that is there's a scene. There's a couple of scenes right in a row in the middle about a little bit learning sort of what the effect that having breasts as she develops and hits puberty and goes through puberty has on uh, the men around her and the boys in her school. And yeah. that, that that heading repeats over and over. The first one is kind of a block heading um, with a couple of lines that sound like they're from an ed course about driving defensively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the end of it, is, you know, the paragraph is about you have to be prepared mentally and physically to react to what happens. Were you prepared? Were then you prepared? And that line, yeah. were you prepared, um, comes atop of the next two scenes which all deal with that. She is teased for that maybe she's, you know, put foam pads in her shirt to make her breasts look bigger even though she's a young teenager. Then she's teased because a couple of her girlfriends see her in the shower and realize that she actually has developed breasts that size at such a young age. And then some boys... Uh, become interested in that and in the in them. And there's a great uh, other uh, thing that the playwright uses, where there's like this beeping sound that happens right, all around like her radar beeping, or something, that goes yeah. on through those all those scenes. And then in the final scene, where boys are starting to really pay attention to her chest, she realizes that it's like a homing beacon that's coming from her own breast, that's like drawing men into them. Yeah. And so that 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 title I think is great. Uh, You know, were you prepared? Were you driving defensively? Right away, you know, in this middle play section, establishes the kind of framework of our society, which is: uh, are are women prepared to deal with the sexual advances of men? A lot of the storytelling around when a woman gets raped or accuses a man of sexual assault is what could she have done to prevent it, which is you know, a terrible way to approach the situation but is, uh, you know, is sort of the storytelling of our culture right now. So that even back in 1997, Paula Vogel was playing with that idea to this, to this young teenage girl, this, this young girl, not even really sure of what her body is or how it interacts with people. The question is, were you prepared to deal with the way men and other people are going to react to your body?
0: Right, and then the other the other headings as you go through it are first to second gear, or or moving the car from first to second gear, moving the car from second to third, moving the car from third to fourth, and each of those it hit a moment of her relationship with her uncle Peck and uh, his, his kind of slow, slow, awful game that he plays over the course of her oh, being yeah, twelve to eighteen. Yeah, and
1: yeah, uh, you know, as you might gather from our conversations, and hopefully, if you've read it too, the, you know, the the timeline of the play is is confused. Not that you don't know what time things are taking place, but it's not sequential. Um, right. the na- the narrator who is a little bit who plays all these versions of herself across time just sort of leads you through different scenes from different times in her life. Um, you know, somewhat seemingly at random. There does not mm-hmm. seem to be. Um, a ton of like, first I'm going to do a childhood, then I'm going to do an adult, then I'm going to do a child. They, you know, they just sort of flow as she tells these different bits of her story and they grow into this picture of what her life is now as a result of what Uncle Peck did to her.
0: Yep, it's a very episodic kind of uh, movement through these pieces that, and it's not, I feel like it It, it would be a little counterintuitive it, it is counterintuitive because it is not necessarily progressing from, you know, bad to worse. It's just always worse. Um, right off the bat, it, you hit this scene that makes you feel as bad as anything else. Oh, my in the, gosh. In the yeah, I mean, the, yeah,
1: the first, it's, yeah, it does not seem to, I mean, it doesn't really seem to be escalating. I'm sure it does <laughs> right. in the actual course of her life. But the way the character tells the story, it starts off. Gosh, almost as bad as it gets the whole time. I mean, the uncle takes her shirt and, you know, lifts it up and is fondling this child's breasts. And yeah. she's clearly uncomfortable and not responding. So, you know, it starts off with a, not a, maybe not a violent sexual assault, but a incredibly abusive sexual assault by an older man on a child. That's like the opening scene of the play.
0: Right. And it's all. We're going to get into kind of the, the 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 background of it a bit here, but it's all kind of born out of the scene that you don't get until very late in the play, where she like. Talks to him over uh, over Christmas. He's in Peck is inside uh, amongst the men of the family. We, oh, we got to back up and talk about the family first before I talk about this moment because the family is this uh, very sexualized Massachusetts right. family. I,
1: I wonder. That, let, let's let's get into discussing a little bit too, uh, and uh, you know we'll we'll describe as we go here. So yeah. one question I have for you, Jackson. I I think maybe I have an answer for myself. Um, is this play comedic? Hmm. The framework of the family is that everyone in, the, in this family, it's an extended family. It's not just, uh, you know, mother, father, kids. It's uncles, aunts, grandmas, grandpas, all kinds of family. Right. Um, and the framework is that this extended family, you get a nickname in the family and that becomes your pseudo name. And your nickname is is derived from some description of your genitalia. Yeah. Uncle Peck. Eh, yeah, Peck, right? <laughs> yep. Uh, Little Bit is a description of what her genitals looked like when she was a baby. Um yep. uh, The mother is like called Big the Big Papa t- or something. Big Papa, like, yeah, the yeah, titless Grandpa's wonder. Somebody's yeah. called BB for blue Ball. So that is crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. that doesn't- I I don't, I mean, maybe there's a family for who that happens, but that's not like the norm for families. And that potentially could be couched as sort of a, a, just sort of a funny, interesting family. Um, Are there, and you know, there's this running sort of driving traffic lights, signs, driver's ed. So it's it's certainly non-realistic. Is it maybe not, let me, let me, let me
0: pull back from comedic. Is it, is it
1: an absurd play? is it intentionally absurd.
0: I think those scenes especially allow the audience allow the audience to laugh at the absurdity of the family. Um those the uh, the scenes that they are in there's there's a couple scenes with the grandparents in it and because they are grandparents and they are having this kind of sexual banter back and forth it is comedic you laugh um but it's also kind of that that awful feeling that comes at family parties where everyone else is okay with something and then the youngest begins their indoctrination with into it, but they still feel very uncomfortable. And that is, in my reading of it, that was what came through in those scenes more was that she was wildly uncomfortable in those scenarios.
1: Right. And it's sort of couched as that, um, or at least the other characters couch it as the fact that little bit is a teenager and she's uncomfortable with people talking about her body. She is shy or she is just too sensitive. And of course, you know, in our culture now, we know those, those adjectives, those descriptions to be one of the ways that people dismiss, um, women's reports of their sexual assault. She's too sensitive. She's too, as shy. she is just uncomfortable with the way she looks. Um so you know in our sort of in our modern, you know our, our sort of new awakening to this reality as a broader culture of what happens, the play has some maybe di- has a different, <laughs> It reads differently to me. It probably doesn't to everyone in the world who's you know been in this world for a long time. For someone who's part of this societal awakening to the fact that, I mean, the statistics, something like one in six women are sexually assaulted over the course of their lives, that reality becomes more, you know, we become more aware of these scenes where you see a young teenage girl be told that she's too sensitive, that people should be able to joke and laugh about her body whenever they want without her being upset about it.
0: I think you're right. The... Vernacular of this play is a—I mean, it was written in '97, but also these are characters written as if they came from World War II, right? Like some of them are talking about the Pacific Theater. Yeah, I think
1: Uncle Peck is is a uh, is a World War II veteran. Yeah, so you know, it's a play set in the '60s and '70s, so that's. Realistic. Yep. I think at the end of the play, he's like, he says he's 45 or something. So middle-aged man that was in World War II. So definitely an older attitude and, yes. um, y- you know, yet uh, such a familiar attitude. Yeah. It does not feel, maybe this just says the fact that as a, as a society, we have just not grown up <laughs> since the 60s <laughs> or 70s. But none of the characters in this play to me feel like they would be out of time right now.
0: Right, and that like is crazy. Yeah. Absolutely, there's so many interactions that I think that I think that's why it's tricky for me to answer that question because it feels like it is a current vernacular, contemporary play, and I'm and I'm reading it and just there's some subtle societal norms that have changed that make them even less okay than uh, a cultural vernacular that they're in because the the family dynamic especially right away even even in the scenes that you would expect them to be a little safer there are scenes between the grandmother the mother and little bit um and you expect them to be a little bit safer and they're just not they're not safer for her at all between between her grandmother trying to scare her out of her sexual behavior and her mother overly sharing how sexual behavior is going to be it doesn't hit a zone where any of it is healthy i don't i think
1: right you know I, the play to me feels like there are some absurdist elements to it, and, and actually, I think um, there are these there are these scenes and these characters for whom the absurdity is um, made to be a little more extreme. You know, she Paula takes characters who are we might recognize a grandmother who's fairly, you know, maybe is uh, trying to scare you away from having sex as a young person, and exaggerates that. Right. And then, so there's those absurdist elements. There's this crazy thing about driving, all these road signs everywhere. There's this family that seems like they're out of a comic book. There's all this crazy stuff. But then the insidious scenes between her and Uncle Peck are brutally realistic. Right. And so, you know, I I think that maybe. There, there's something in that about the way that she wrote the play there's this culture around little bit this family this broader society you know it, there, there definitely are some absurd elements right because she doesn't have a homing beacon in her chest that boys are like drawn to like radar right that's an exaggeration it's right. it's, all, it's more like a stand-up comedy bit than it is like a realistic portrayal of men and women it's designed to shock and make a, a meta, you know a metaphor make a, an image point. So there's those, there's that part of the play, and then there's the part of the play that is so realistic that it becomes incredibly uncomfortable to watch. This man seduce and perv- per, you know, just twist everything yeah. to get what he wants. And so there's something in that I think about her writing of the play. There's these. The reality of sexual abuse for a little bit is is stark in her mind, perhaps maybe this is a stab at it that these these moments that she had with Uncle Peck stay sharp and clear with her forever. And what she remembers of the world around her is a more exaggerated metaphor image driven world
0: i I think you're right on with the treating it as absurdism. I hadn't thought about it before, but it is it makes a lot more the, the the form of it makes a lot more sense to me and, and in that way because you're absolutely right you you blow up these other characters but then you it's not catharsis but what's the opposite of catharsis like dread um that you feel yeah. when when and it then- when it flips to this really personal really real and because you're you're Assumedly, I th- I think you're right. I think in those scenes you're kind of I imagine the audience is guffawing at some of the absurdity of these characters. Right. I and mean, then,
1: you know, it's it's insidious. Even her family is insidious, but it is. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny. Yeah. In like a sort of I'm uncomfortable, but I kind of know people <laughs> like that, <laughs> right? So I, I better chuckle a lot. I don't think I don't you know I don't think any of it is a comedy. Um, yeah. Per se, but it, it's I mean it's. Some of the scenes are you chuckle at. I mean, mm-hmm. the image of like teenage boys being brought by a homing beacon R- to teenage right. girls. That's I mean, that's kind of funny. I mean, as a yeah. guy, I, that, to some women out there, that's probably not that funny to think about. But it's it, that sort of makes me chuckle. That 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 image of that relationship between teenage boys and teenage girls.
0: Yeah, but then to have the kind of rug ripped out from you every other episodic vignette is is a is a real experience. Let me tell you. I read so this play maybe... in a I read this play in what? a mall. Don't read this play in a mall.
1: Oh god. <laughs> 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 wow. No, I, I... I tried to read it away from people. The yeah. the, uh, the the book that I have the script in is a pair of plays by Paula Vogel it called, and the the duet of plays is called the Mammary Plays. So oh, Usually, okay. I bring the play to work and read it on my break or something. and I was like, I think I'll leave this one. At <laughs> I'll home. leave it at home. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, but you know, and and uh, so so I think you know p- part of that is is what Paula Vogel is is talking about is there are these. You know, as a culture, there are there are parts of the relationships between men and women and their sexuality that are that you laugh at, even despite the fact that, you know, that there are some insidious underbellies to it. Um, Their relationships between your grandma and your grandpa uh, that talked about how your dad, you know, your dad seduced your mother um, when your mom makes jokes about how she got drunk and that's when you were conceived. I mean, stuff like that makes you sort of uncomfortably chuckle along to what's going on. And it. All of that is this sort of outer stuff, and then you realize that what's underneath all of this outer stuff, what all of this sort of chuckleable, sort of crazy, absurd society allows to continue is this brutal, real, clear picture of a terrible, terrible thing. And you wonder, seeing the scenes between Uncle Peck and Lil' Bit, should I have laughed at the previous scene? Because the stuff that happened in the previous scene is undoubtedly what allows the stuff between Uncle Peck and Little Bit to happen. Because Little Bit has a grandma and a mother that scare her away or confuse her, make her just reel with the competing informations about what sex is and her body. That is what drives her into the arms of an older man who says, your body's beautiful. It's natural. You should do what you feel. And twists that into an abusive situation. Because we laugh at teenage boys who can, you know, quote unquote, can't control themselves around women's breasts. Right, because yeah. we laugh at that, we allow for things like the, the feeling that Lil bit has that, oh, Uncle Peck can't control himself.
0: Yeah, you wind you know, up becoming just, accomplices almost. As an audience, I
1: think that's exactly yeah. I was going to say the exact same thing. You feel like an accomplice situation. Yeah. You laugh at these family scenes that are ridiculous, and I think they're supposed sort of supposed to make you chuckle, and then you go, "Crap, yeah, the, <laughs> that was terrible." That what have I led done to this? Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and the family lets it happen, and then even the ones that know let it happen. Oh there's my this, gosh, yes. There's there's a scene with the aunt who is married to Uncle Peck, and she, throughout the course of the monologue, it becomes clear that she knows everything that's happening, and she can't wait for a little bit to go off to college so that she can get her husband back, and she do, she doesn't bring it up, and it, I mean, and and not to not to really lay into her about that, but within even. Within the structure of people knowing, there is still a culture of we need to keep this under the table in this family, which is just yeah. a, a kind of a even more crushing. Like you wonder how many people actually know. The mom well, even the has mom a scene seems where she indicates yeah, that she
1: knows, or at least suspects that Uncle Peck pays too much attention to her. Um, he, you know, there's a there's a confusing scene that in the middle uh, that is a monologue by Uncle Peck where he is. You know, imagining teaching, or not—it's not an imagining. He's remembering teaching um, young BB to fish, who's a boy, a, a cousin of Little Bit, and. Yeah. The scene ends with him leading him to a treehouse and telling him to keep secrets. So you imagine he did that to BB2. So, you know, the family you sort of build up this repertoire of people who know who exist in this hypersexualized absurd environment don't say anything or continue to make the situation worse and then allow for this terrible twisted relationship between Uncle Peck and Little Bit.
0: Yep. I think this is a good moment to kind of transition because we just talked about the scene between Uncle Peck and Bobby. Let's talk about Peck just a little bit. uh, A little bit. um, Because he is a a really central character in this. And I think Paula Vogel gives him a fair shot as much as you can in this play with this character. She does a lot. She does more work than I would have done to try to make him a human character um, and not just an evil person.
1: Right. One of the things that uh, you know marks that right at the beginning is the character description for Uncle Peck who she describes the actor that should play him as being the same kind of person that you would cast to play Atticus Finch in How, yeah. uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. So, whoa! <laughs> <I> mean, yeah. <laughs> think about Atticus Finch and then think mm-hmm. about this child abuser, Uncle Peck the differences in Persona Um, In or not even actually personality wise, they're probably pretty similar in um, in what you would imagine that person looking like. Right. And that's the Atticus Finch kind of person is who she wants playing Uncle Peck. So she right away says, you're not going to cast some. You know, you're not going to have somebody grow their hair out long and stringy and weird, or grow you know this stereotypical little mustache, or any of the things that are associated right. with these stereotypical socially awkward pedophiles. She instead builds a much more insidious character, one that you would not expect, one that makes the audience go, "Oh no, um, pedophiles, child abusers can look like this
0: even." hmm And and behave in and behave in kind ways. That's the other part of this character that she t- spends a lot of time. Making him a very kind. The scene with Bobby is a perfect example of it. He is a very. He 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 kind of sets it up as as like he's setting up this scene as he's a fisherman and he really loves to fish and this particular kind of fish is really elusive and he so he takes Bobby fishing and he, he hooks into this fish and. By the time he starts to reel it in, Bobby begins to feel bad about the fish and how much pain he's causing, so he cuts the fish loose, this apparently uh, prize-winning fish, which it's there's also a really awful little subtle part of that monologue that describes how he's playing this game with little bit and probably with Bobby as well about this kind of slow, you should act as if you don't even care if you if you catch the fish. Right, um, yeah,
1: I mean, you know, the, the sort of the the trope description of letting a fish reeling them in and letting them back out and reeling them in and letting them back out kind of playing this long game with them is that you're absolutely right this yeah. sort of insidious description of how he plays these games with these kids
0: yep so that aside in that moment he is very kind to Bobby um, who is you know uh, clearly a very emotional in this situation and while he uh, gives him some kind of antiquated and and Old, uh, not antiquated, but harmful ways in which to bottle up his emotions. He does also try to take care of him in that moment before very quickly switching to some more abuse in the situation
1: and and his, his kindness is part of his insidiousness right because yeah exactly bobby starts to cry about the fish and uncle peck says you know eventually he says it's okay for boys to cry sometimes i cry can you keep that secret for me that sometimes right. i cry i can keep secrets for you as well and so let's go to this treehouse and keep a secret yeah. You see how he is masterfully twisting these situations. Another scene in which Uncle Peck appears to be really kind and thoughtful, right? It's sort of the—it um, it's, it's, doesn't happen too late in the play, but it is maybe the inciting incident for the most of the action of the play. We find Uncle Peck in the kitchen. Washing dishes. Yep. And, you know, again, remember, try to remember back to this being a play in the 60s and the 70s, because in this play, um, the women make the food all day. And Uncle Peck's point is, uh, the women made the food all day. Why should they have to clean up the dishes? That's not manly. They've been on their feet. They should be able to rest and enjoy it. I can do the dishes, which is a a fairly, you know, a a fairly kind and considerate attitude to have at, you know, given the culture surrounding them at the time bit finds him in that kitchen, and he's in a, a sort of a bad mood. We we know that he has some has suffered some um, because of the war. There are some in him of you know something like PTSD. We know he's an alcoholic. Um, he describes it as having a fire in his heart, yeah. um, which could be a description of PTSD and fear, or he could be describing you know heart being love. his sort of fighting against this love for children. In any case, whatever's going on with him, he uses alcohol to escape it. So he's he's got some issues. So part of making him sympathetic is making him someone who's not just. Uh, who who seems to be or at least pretends to be fighting against the demons he has in him.
0: Yep. And I think that scene was the one the one moment that I was able to kind of see him as a as a character outside of this stuff. He describes the, fi- the he has he has a great little line and this is prior assumedly to most of his abuse abusive relationship with little bit. Um it, it's far enough back in the timeline, but he has this l- line that he says something about, and I'll just paraphrase it. But some people have a fire in their belly, some people have a fire in their brain. I have a fire in my heart, and that, uh, and, and he's describing different levels of brokenness, and that that level of brokenness to have that awareness of it at least struck a chord um, in me and, and it, made him a sympathetic it, character. And, and how moment. it
1: starts to weave into this cycle of abuse um, is that little bit, discovering that he is drinking his problems away, says, well, does talking to me help? Could you talk to me instead of drinking? Yeah. Beck says, yeah, sure, we could try So she says, okay, let's meet once a week. We'll meet in secret. I won't tell my parents. You don't tell your wife. Um, we'll just go talk somewhere. Yep. And then you don't have to drink. And you can just talk your problems to me instead of drinking. And that becomes... The One of the ways in which Uncle Peck ensnares her into physical sexual assault is by using um, him getting his way with her body as a reward for him not drinking.
0: Yep. I mean, mm-hmm. how
1: twisted is that? And that's yep. where it starts, is in this scene. And then you, you sort of, you know, and again, that this scene's come late in the play. In the first scene of the play, that that is established because he says, "I've been good all week. I haven't had a drink. Can you give me a reward?" And yep. the reward is that she lets him fondle her. And, you know, mm-hmm. obviously that she's a she's a minor, so there's no consent. Uh, but he, right. she says it's okay as a child.
0: It's like, a, and it's like she's twelve in that scene. She's like very, very young, and but she's at that age where, oh, the, the 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 final the first scene of the play when she's talking about being seventeen, she prefaces it with "I was old and knew everything" or something like that. I was old yeah. and knew everything, and I was seventeen, and that's that's. I think that is still true of of certain children when they're twelve. They think that they know. I remember thinking that I knew all the problems of the universe and how to solve them when I was twelve, and I could help in interpersonal relationships. And that moment is, is and seeing someone in that moment who is older take advantage of that is, a, is it, it's a hard scene in that in in the play. Even even though we see him at his most broken in that scene, it still falls short in in any way to make him a fully sympathetic character because of that.
1: right. I mean, he he and and part of. Um little bit's discovery as she grows up across not the not the uh, timeline of the play as it's laid out in the script but the actual chronological timeline of what happens in her life as she grows she's able to more fully realize that this was an abusive relationship she was tricked um, and that you know she this relationship was one of being manipulated and so she becomes aware of that as she grows up, and now as an adult woman, has to live with the consequences of that. She talks about, you know, she now suffers from alcoholism. Um, her relationships have been ruined because of it. She's had a hard time finding work. She had she dropped out of school. We think largely because she's an alcoholic, because she was a chi- a victim of childhood sex abuse.
0: Yeah, and you see. Kind of her progression through the play with those headings again. I think the last, the last heading is. I just want to flip to it real quick. Uh, driving in today's, wor- yeah, driving in today's world. Um, you see, you see this kind of last scene with her as the thirty-five year old adult version of Little Bit, and it, it, it seems like she is able. The, the only kind of beacon of hope in this play is she at least seems to be able to live with it. And and maybe
1: to be moving, maybe to be moving beyond it. She talks about in that monologue. That's interesting. um, You know, she she started to believe in things she didn't believe in when she was younger, like family and uh, Mm, yeah, some other stuff like that. And so there's a there's a sense there that what she felt about her family as a as a youth was a lot coming from her the fact that she was seen through a cracked lens cracked and then shaped by uncle peck Uh, and so he sort of taught her to hate her family and now as an adult woman she is she's growing and she's learning about forgiveness she says um so there, there is some. I think for me, at least, you feel like there's some hope in the last monologue that the, the her description of the journey is um, now as an adult, separated from what has happened. I've been able to more fully uh, become aware of, cope with, um, evaluate what has happened. Um, and now I'm in a place where I can start to believe in family again. This family that let me down, that allowed this to happen. I can believe in forgiveness. Does she forgive Uncle Peck?
0: I think so. And, th- and and honestly, that's the... I think that's the reason why at the end it seems a little... It seems ambiguous as to how she is going to progress. Because the last scene, after, after she said the monologue, after she's turned the radio on, right before she revs the car off and we go to blackout... Uncle Peck's ghost is in the back of the car, and she sees him. She smiles at him. They nod, and the line, the, the stage description, is something like they are happy to be driving together.
1: Yeah, uh, so that is sort of a surprising ending for me.
0: Yeah, and especially after that monologue that she's talking, and after the final, the final kind of portion of the play, she like, she 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 meets with him, and they almost have another uh instance of his abuse and she leaves the hotel room and is gone and basically she says she drinks himself she drank he drank himself to death within 7 years of that and now and she never saw him again
1: From yeah for me that's maybe what i would nail down as the climax of the play if yeah. i had to it's a it's a more extended scene than some of the other scenes and it is after she has gone away to college um she apparently turns 18 while in college Um, that's, I think common for a lot of seniors. I don't, I, I turned 18 the summer before my college and I'm kind of a young person for my, for, you know, back when I was in school for my grade. So you have to imagine that this might be something a little different from the sixties and seventies that you could get to college and not yet be 18. Um, and she apparently doesn't turn 18 until somewhere into the second semester. Um, because once she's gone away, you know, they don't, they're no longer meeting weekly. Um, and so uncle Peck starts to send her letters and these yeah. letters are. I think we. I think we see some of the more benign ones. Um, they're gifts. They're hey, I miss you. There we should talk. There I can't reach you on the phone. Are you in the library? Uh, but they always come with um, a description of days, like seventy-nine more days, sixty more days. Yeah. Hey, thirty more days. And then later we learned that in between those messages, he's actually sent her some letters with just the countdown on them. Uh, right. Super creepy. I sort of at first, I think uh, at first blush, I assumed that this was a countdown like to Christmas break or something when she would finally come home. We learn. Um, well, let's let's just set the scene. So uh, Jackson, so they she gets all these letters and they arrange to meet in a hotel room. What and what goes on?
0: Yeah, they arrange to meet in a, in a hotel room because it comes out that she wanted to have this conversation in private. Was what which, what she tells him and. He brings champagne, and they're going to celebrate her birthday. And what she says in the scene is information to us, uh, because I agree, at at my first read-through of the play, I was getting the feeling that, oh, he's counting down to seeing her again, so Thanksgiving or Christmas or something. But she says that it was a countdown to her birthday, uh, her 18th birthday, which is the legal age of consent, so it wouldn't be statutory rape for them to... Yeah, and and she
1: actually says that that phrase is that the age eighteen is where it is no longer statutory rape. So she's clearly, um, I I mean, done some research or, or done some thinking and preparing for this conversation and some learning.
0: Yeah, and and it's a it's a stark difference from every other scene that she's in. Clearly the time separate has <laughs> uh, shown some clarity into the relationship and she is a very different person in those scenes. I think, I think even the stage directions for Peck is something along the lines of he knows he's walking on thin ice or something like that through this whole scene. So it's a very different scene, uh, equally uncomfortable, but very different power structures within that scene.
1: Right. And so they meet in the hotel room and um, she says, this has got to stop. I know you have been, she doesn't come right out and really call him an abuser, but she says, I know that you've been waiting for me to turn 18. So it's no longer statutory rape. Um, yep. and he says, whoa, 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 slow down. What are you talking about? She says, this has got to be over. We're not doing this anymore. We're done. And he says, whoa, 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 okay, okay, okay. Let's just, why don't we just, uh, let's just lie down on the bed, fully clothed. Just let me hold you for a little bit. Um, you can see him kind of, twisting those wires again Um, and you can see her kind of fall back into um, some of her uh, previous patterns of abuse and she says she doesn't really want to it's pretty clear but she says okay but just you can just hold me i'm setting the boundary i'm setting boundary you can just hold me and so they do and she almost kisses him but then she leaps up she says i gotta go and he says didn't you feel anything and she says no but then the crucial moment comes and he proposes to her
0: oh yeah Um, yeah yeah
1: so mm-hmm. an important to note that we maybe should have made earlier is that they are not blood relatives. A um, little yep. bit is Mary, Peck's husband's niece, or Peck's wife's niece. Um, so Peck is her uncle by marriage. Um, yes. So that's what he says is, we're not blood relatives. I'll divorce Mary. You and I can get married. And she says,
0: no way. And she yeah. She out of there. Yeah, um, which is like a huge, just like. That moment is even more so. The the kind of you see him go way too far. Like almost for for most of the play, he is not crossing the line. He is he or he's he's doing the very slow reel on the fishing line for for her. And then in in this scene, he kind of just bears all in that moment and goes for the, the home run and thankfully is, is turned down. But it is a, it is a, it is a big, big moment. And she, she walks out of the room, especially after that. It is the kind of last tie that cuts that she, that springs in her, that she needs to go. This is, this is really not right. She has a line about family in it there, which, which is, is almost a throwaway line, but this, like you're talking about screwing over family in this point. And
1: and that that decision then turns Uncle Peck back to drinking, and we learn that a couple of years later he drinks himself to death. Yes. He doesn't ever really go back to Mary, um, and he drinks himself to death. And so the, the person that she sees in the car in the final scene of the play is like a spirit of Uncle Peck. And it seems like, I agree, that after all of this, she's come to forgive him and even appreciate what he taught her about driving. (laughs) Um, driving is what she's held on to as, um, the thing that uh, keeps her, uh, she describes it as being sort of an out of body experience. Um, there's a, there's a terrible, terrible scene just before this final confrontation where she's an adult, which is the kind of the first instance of abuse. We think probably, um, he, he is, she is too young to drive at this point. So younger than 15 or 14. Um, and he offered to let her drive and he pulls her into his lap and she you know, kind of drives like a, you'd have a, like a little kid drive. And he yep. does his first abuse of her um, by putting his hands under her shirt and um, kind of sexually gratifying himself, I think, um, yes. in that scene. So a terrible scene and she says that was the first time it happened and after that moment, after that moment as a little kid, I lived outside of my body. Yep. Um, in my head, in my head only, my body was disconnected. And so then as an adult, she says, driving is what kind of connects me to that out of body feeling as if that is where I'm comfortable still. That's a place of comfort to go, to be out of body, away from what is happening in to me from the people around me.
0: Yeah. She talks about it. I think she talks about it kind of connecting to. Her brain, as opposed to her body, like she lives in her head now rather than in her body, and that that experience aligns with that. So, it's I, you you really feel like you're you're taken into the picture. I'd be so excited to see them do a version of this play and see how they handle that moment because it's such a clear picture in my mind. Of you know what driving is in the on country roads, going way too fast on country roads in a Mustang, <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and and that feeling that happens. Uh, what, I mean, whether through movies or through through our personal experience, we've all had a similar experience or or ex, uh, watched a similar experience happen of that that sort of feeling of of being free within that context, and 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 that's where she retreats to still.
1: So let me ask you, Jackson. Why do you think? Let's. I want to change subjects a little bit here. Why do you yeah. think Paula Vogel decides to use the um, the the Gre- use a Greek chorus rather than yeah. have those uh, have that cor- have characters? Because there's only three members of the Greek chorus. Each of them takes a pretty important role: the grandfather, the mother, and then, um, interestingly, maybe we should talk about this later too. Um, a teenage chorus plays the grandmother and then later that teenage chorus member plays little bit um yeah. voices her lines in the scene where that kind of terrible uh, first abuse scene that i described so what i mean what what's that about what what does that lend to the play why do it why not just cast mother grandmother grandpa and then, you know, you, some, you'll have, you can double cast. That's in a lot of scripts because those, those characters play other people. They play waiters and school kids. Um, so, it's, yeah. you know, it's not weird to double cast characters. Why go with the format of a chorus? And would the audience ever know?
0: Ooh, that's a good question. Would the audience ever know? Um, I think one thing it does functionally is it really draws focus to the two of them and and that they are the 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 pillars and the uh, the the suns around which this play rotates and around which the storyline and these characters rotate i think i th- i believe that in the seeing of this play having just three other members kind of floating through you 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 can't escape <laughs> you can't escape these people i if if i and i don't know exactly i would love to see this play done i think if they're all on stage all the time, that's even more indicative of of what having them watch what's happening oh, and all their characters watch what's happening. That's interesting. So the a,
1: watching is part of what makes them a chorus. And what's interesting is that she calls them a Greek chorus. Yes. Um, she specifies that they are a Greek chorus. And part of what the Greek chorus did is they their actions, their lines, their existence was in the orchestra, the seeing place. Um, so there's a connection there to this idea that there is a community of people to watch what happens. In Greek plays, yeah. they, I mean, all the, all the scenes actually took place in like the town square. And so there actually was a bunch of people around. And so that, that is very interesting that part of the function of the chorus is not just that they are playing multiple characters. That happens in lots of plays. But that they are on stage witnessing the events and choosing sort of to continually participate in the forward motion of the abuse.
0: Yep, which, which harkens back to what we were talking about, about being co-conspirators or culpable in some way for it. These characters are watching the whole time as as this these events are happening. And so tying it, so getting that meta view of the characters that these, even, even when they're blankly sitting there as the chorus watching it, they're still the characters. You still harken he, back to when that character was the mom and was saying those things and she still let them happen. So that, that I think is a big part of it. There's a, I was, I was looking for some antiphonal uh, nature to it. And there is some of that because uh, the, the choruses do play, have these long monologues as either the grandma or aunt Mary and stuff like that. So they, they do have these kind of long soliloquies as a chorus does. So there's some of that Format there, but I think the I think the watching is the big thing for me that makes and them on the other stage. thing
1: is I think Paula Vogel talks about in the um, like in the introductory notes to the play that the other thing the chorus should do is um, build like set elements out of their bodies. Yeah. They should be involved. They should be part of the environment of the play. So they also the chorus here also helps to construct the reality of the be of the abusive situation. Oh wow! Uh, yeah. They play the cast of characters that allow for it to continue. I think we've already established that. They also play the reality in which it occurs. Yeah. So you know the people that see it are culpable in not just participating in the plot, but in the very fabric of the reality that allows it to happen.
0: Yeah. They they in in that way you have no escape from the idea that you are breathing life into this way of life. Uh, So so these. That that would be awesome to see a really well done physical production of this. I like I'm imagining they could even be the car, they can be they can be the structures of the door and stuff like that. They they, they can be in the moment with them. And and that is a, is its whole other kind of heartbreaking. So let's let's
1: zone in then on this teenage Greek chorus. So Paula yes. Vogel calls for one of the three to be a teenage girl. She does specify and again one of the reasons i like her is that she i think she kind of talks to directors in her notes in a way that says you know you have some creative license here's what i suggest here's what i imagine one of the things she says is you may want to consider casting a, a girl who is who is of legal age who is a a consenting adult because yeah. of some of the scenes she's going to be forced to be in um to play this character and just because it might make the audience uncomfortable to see a very young girl in some of these scenes so but in any case she does say that she's supposed to be able to pass for 11 um in in the playing of it yep so but then as well this...
0: like she also plays the grandma later on in the play
1: so yeah, through the, through the whole play, she is the teenage actor plays grandma yeah. who who talks about having sex with the grandpa who's supposed to be played by an adult man. Yeah, so you get some of the awkward sort of um, you know a, difference in ages involved in the sex discussions, even in those two characters.
0: I think that also feeds back into what you were saying about absurdism as well, because you have this this perceivably very young actress. Saying these things that would that even more so makes me think that those scenes are meant for you to laugh in them because when you picture, <laughs> picture or, someone or, who looks eleven, saying those lines that the grandma yeah, is saying, or,
1: or you know, not they're they're not meant to laugh at maybe like a comedy is, but they're meant to um, be a, uh, be exaggerated. They're yes. meant to highlight the most exaggerated forms of these people we know and see in the world. And so, in that way, in seeing exaggeration, um, that is a comic element, and so you, you you chuckle. I don't know if it's laugh out loud kind of a play, but right. th- like we talked about before, there is some chuckling at that. So then, what uh, the other the, then what happens with this teenage chorus is she's played the grandma um, all along. Uh, it's probably pretty important that it is a girl, so I'll continue to say she. Because then, in this, in that, the scene of abuse that I described, the first moment of abuse where he pulls her into her lap in the car and fondles her. Um, th- Lil' Bit's lines are voiced by the teenage chorus. That has not happened at all in the play. That is a brand new element. Nobody has voiced yep. lines for anybody across the whole play. So that is brand spanking new out of the gate. Lil' Bit is the the actress, the adult woman actress playing Lil' Bit, is acting the scene as if she's 11. But then this girl who's supposed to be able to pass for being 11 is actually saying the lines. What? I mean... I think that we missed some of it just because we're just reading and not seeing the play, but what does it do for you? Even just in reading it, Jackson,
0: I think the word I'm looking for is isolation. And what it does is for me, anyway, it separates you from the scene and lets you look, look at two different elements of it. It forces you to handle a theatrical convention at the same time as you're processing something awful and you are jarred by it. It, I think. I think again, we're talking about an absurd element of of someone. She's not even miming uh, the the. So the thirty five year old actress uh, who is playing Little Bit is still in the scene. She's sitting on uh, the the actor who plays Peck's lap, as to the side. This eleven year old looking actress is saying the words that Little Bit is saying. So you are removed. From the situation, you're not watching a scene between two people, you are focusing on the words themselves, on the actions themselves as separate from each other, and you are demanded to engage on a different level than just an emotional reaction to watching people have a conversation or an interaction.
1: And there's some metaphor to there as well, of course, of Lil' Bit losing her her speech, You know, as a person in the scene, she's now she's been robbed of her voice by this abuse and her voice comes from some separate part of her now. And that that sort of taking away of choice and your ability to contribute to a relationship is one of the things that is particularly insidious about Peck's abuse of her is that throughout the play, his mantra is we're not going to do anything until you decide to do it. Until you decide us, okay, we won't do anything. Well, what's implicit in that line? The line is not, we're not going to do anything unless you decide to do it. The (laughs) implicit, evil, twisted nature of what he says, and it's the same phrasing over and over again is, we're not going to do anything until you decide to do it. Even in offering her some semblance of choice, Uncle Peck is saying, you don't really have a choice. It's just a waiting game. There's yep. no real choice. You know, We're not going to do it or not do it. We're just waiting for you to do it. So he's robbed her of that voice of being able to say, no, I don't want to do it at all. It's just, yeah. no, I, I, let's not do it right now. Let's wait a little bit later and later you'll decide to let me. And so that, that you know, this first moment of abuse that we get very late in the play, I think, Highlighting the sort of separation between the little bit who physically exists in the scenes and is abused, is an abused child, and the voice, the ability to make choices and contribute to a relationship, becomes separate.
0: Hmm. I had not thought about. That's so true. The in that moment, because after that, she has the monologue about I, I was not in my body anymore after that day. Right. That, yes. Exactly. You, you write, you see a physical representation of that on stage in front of you.
1: Well, I th- that I think though I think that will conclude our conversation on. Uh, I think so, yeah. Just a a remarkable play. You know, this Paula Vogel is famous for having said about this play that uh, she was told by a Broadway producer that it is not universal enough to have a Broadway run. Um, which is great, mm. you know. It's one of the endemic problems in in Broadway is the you know the, how hard it is for female playwrights to get their stuff on Broadway, and and of course that statement is just ridiculous. That was back in yeah. the '90s, I'm sure, the early 2000s. In our modern culture, we know that these stories are unfortunately very, very universal. You know, like I said earlier, I think the statistic stands at something like one in six women suffer yeah. some sort of sexual abuse. And so this play has a lot to speak volumes. And even if you're not somebody who's experienced sexual abuse, the universal part of it is um, watching, like we've talked about, this chorus be part of the fabric that props things up. You, you know, I, I'm not somebody who's experienced sexual abuse, but I can certainly see um, ways in which I might be part of systems that prop up, that create the reality for abuse to happen. And in that way, I can connect to the play and, and hopefully, as a result, uh, shift my actions.
0: I agree. It is, a, it is a play that forces you to question yourself in the same way as uh, kind of the same comments we had for Boy Gets Girl. It forces you to be introspective and realize the kind of reactions that you instinctively have to chuckle or whatever you do during those scenes that the family is there, but then realize the culpability of that reaction and ask questions of yourself as well. And I think you're absolutely right. The this is a play that can be done today. Still, uh, it, it is absolutely still a an issue that is prevalent. It doesn't. It's it's a play that it is not really dated that much, in my opinion. The, the there's some references to songs and stuff like that, but there aren't. No, honestly, even... if you change the years that
1: she talked about, I yeah. don't think you'd really notice.
0: And it's very evergreen in terms of its technology too. A lot of times, plays in this. Range will have like, you know, people talking, complaining about their new cell phone and it's hard to, you know, work around that moment in them. There's nothing like that in this. I think this play can absolutely be done very, very close to as is with a little bit of work for dates and it's still a very important play to do. So I hope you read it. I hope if you have the chance, you can go see it. And uh, yeah, I think I think that's about it. If there's any, any other thoughts you want to tell us about, or if we miss something completely, which is very possible, and you can send us any, any ideas for more topics to talk about, we'd happily go back and talk about this one again, or just talk to you online as well. So hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, email, all of that is down in the link in the description.
1: Absolutely, one of the continuing ideas of this podcast is that Jackson and I love to have conversations about plays. We wanted a format to do that and to participate in conversations about plays with other people. So we hope that you'll participate in those conversations online. Um, if you're not, especially with a play about this kind of content, you know if you're if you're not. Uh, comfortable participating in a public way on our, uh, you know, our public comments. Feel free to, um, you know, direct message or contact Jackson or I um, individually. Um, we could we can have those conversations. You can send, um, uh, you know, some of our contact information for our, you know the the podcast is online, and we can uh, we can participate with a conversation with you that way as
0: well. Yes, indeed. So until next time, I'm Jackson Nikolai.
1: I'm Jacob Mann Christensen, and this is No Script, the podcast. We'll see you next time.